Blog Talk Radio. This is a new dimension in sound. From Cavalier Basketball. LeBron watching with seven, with six, with five. Who else but LeBron? LeBron to the circle, unloads. Got it! I think he prefer the game to Indians baseball. Swung in and belted. The deep left. Away back. Goal! To Browns football. Back in the pocket. Steps up, goes into the end zone. Up high, trailing Edwards up. Got it, touchdown! This is the WaitingForNextYear.com podcast. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to the WaitingForNextYear.com podcast. I'm Craig. I'm hosting tonight with Rick. I guess we're going to be talking about some uh, Cavs basketball tonight. I'm sorry if you tuned in for the uh, the Noah Heron news and how many yards we think we, he's going to run for next year behind the, uh, the new 30-something-year-old offensive line. But tonight we are going to talk about the Cavs, and we're going to talk specifically about defense. And uh, why don't you introduce our, our uh, guest there, Rick? Uh, thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're going to get into some Cavs tonight, and uh, I'm pleased to have with us uh, John Cook. Uh, John is, uh, among other things, a good friend of mine, and John is uh, uh, well, currently serving as an athletic director for Upper Scioto Valley High School. He's been a, uh, a coach on, on multiple levels, including uh, uh, college with uh, uh, Bluffton and, and served at Ohio New- Northern University as well. And so I'm, uh, I'm very happy to have John. John, could you say hi to everybody for us? Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem, John. Now, six weeks ago, uh, a reader um, wrote in and, and wanted to know something kind of specific that, that, to be honest with you, I just didn't know enough about basketball to answer in, a, in an intelligible way. And so uh, I asked John to take over, and, and he did an outstanding job. And so I asked John if he would mind uh, jumping in with us for maybe a, a couple podcasts and, and breaking down some things about the Cavs that, that maybe have some questions about or, or you, know, you might want to know uh, a little bit uh, in, in better detail from someone who is uh, kind of a student in the game and might be able to answer the questions uh, certainly uh, a lot more knowledgeable than I can. And so uh, John agreed to come on and, and do some podcasts with us. We're going to do defense tonight. You know, the Cavs, you hear it all the time that the Cavs hang their hat on defense, that that's the thing that is, has really propelled them uh, to the, uh, well, to the top of the Eastern Conference, and, and I certainly would agree with that. And so uh, tonight we're going to start with defense, and, uh, you know, hopefully maybe next week or the week after we'll get to offense, but we're going to start with defense. And so, John, I just wanted to ask you, could you, could you characterize for us uh, what the Cavs' defense is, what, what their defensive philosophy might be? Well, I think when you watch the Cavs play, they, they have a little bit of a defensive look depending on their personnel, and, and obviously it's the NBA, so a lot of what they do defensively is dictated by scouting reports. But, but by and large, they have a lot in common, I think, with, with the way San Antonio has defended for years, and that is uh, they, they don't do a lot of fancy stuff. They don't rotate a lot of different ways. They don't double real hard. Uh, from different angles and try to confuse people. They they really predicate their defense on good, solid positioning, uh, uh, good, solid ball pressure, the, the pressure on the passer, the pressure on the guy that's initiating the offense, and, and just keeping people in front of them. And I, I think when they're at their best, uh, defensively they're forcing teams to take contested jump shots, and, and they do a really good job of limiting teams to one shot. I mean, when they have problems, uh, which they've had quite a bit of here lately, uh, they really have a hard time keeping people out of the lane. Uh, they, they, they can't. They don't contain the ball like they were early in the year, and they 
they force big guys to give help, which which opens up, you know, a, a big guy offensively a foot from the basket or or creates bad rotations and, and and leads to foul trouble. But by and large, I think they're just a very position oriented defense that relies on good solid ball pressure. Okay, well let's let's talk about a couple of things that you brought up there. And I, you know, obviously the um, the San Antonio model would would make sense, seeing as how that's where you know Mike Brown got his uh, his start, his experience from, and and you know obviously with Indiana we we realize that too. Uh, but you talked about how the Cavaliers don't like to do a lot of um, rotations or don't uh, don't like to do a lot of double teaming. Obviously, we saw a little bit of that last night with uh, with Dwight Howard, uh, in a sense where. You, you kind of are in trouble either way. When you double team Dwight Howard, that leaves a three point shooter wide open or somebody else wide open, to, you know, to make an extra pass. But if you don't double team Dwight Howard, you're, you know, oftentimes going to be in a lot of trouble because he just possesses uh, some skills that that not your average player uh, does. But the one thing that that I think that um, some of our, our listeners or our readers might be interested in um, when when the Cavs are in their their basic defensive set. And you, you you say that they like to put pressure on the ball. One thing that most um, most watchers of the Cavs will notice is that whenever the the ball swings or or, or more is dribbled from one side of uh, of the, the top of the key to the other, um, usually one of our bigs jumps out and and puts some additional pressure on the ball. What what's the purpose of that? Well, I, I think you know the, the the main offensive weapon in the NBA for the last I don't know 15 years. Maybe it has been a real steady diet of, of, of high ball screens uh, and and trying to open up a guy in the middle of the floor. And, and I mean, it's basic basketball, but in the NBA it, it works because all the players on the floor tend to be so skilled that, that, that the, the screen and roll action is really, really hard to defend. And, and the Cavs, I think, have done a really good job defending screen and roll because, at least in my estimation, because their first five guys are are three guys that defend the perimeter incredibly well when they really want to. I mean, they can really lock in and get it done with with Delonte and and Mo out top and and LeBron is, is such a good help defender because he's so long and so athletic. But the two bigs are really what makes it go. And and, and I think you said it before. I mean, they they don't have to do the same types of things to double the post because he's pretty good. He's pretty strong. He pushes guys off their spot. But but what really makes him effective defending that high screen and roll stuff is that Ben Wallace is very effective at showing real early. Uh, kind of he doesn't have to stop the guy with the ball, but he's got to redirect him. He's either got to get him going back toward half court or get him to reverse his dribble and take the ball back to his back to his defender side and kind of take that screen out of things. Um, and he does an excellent job of it. Probably the biggest reason he does a good job of it is he's capable of defending out away from the basket too. One of the things that's become really popular in the NBA. And even in college basketball in the last five to eight years is that is this what people call pick and pop or screen and spot up. You know, it, it's always been screen and roll for years and years. A guy sets a screen on the ball, the ball clears the screen, and he rolls to the front of the rim. Now you've got so many skilled big guys, a guy like Rasheed Wallace and, and uh, I think Hito Turkoglu, Pages Stoyakovic, they have some size, and, and they can screen the ball. And then when you, when you clear the screen, instead of rolling to the front of the rim, they just sprint wide or spot up dead in the center of the floor and you drag that help defender as far as you can, then you kick back to an open shooter. Well, Ben Wallace is pretty quick, pretty active, pretty long, and, and he can uh, he can show off that ball screen, redirect the guy, and still get a decent closeout and contain the guy off the bounce that's right in front of him. You know, And a lot of four guys, like I said, a Rasheed Wallace, those type of guys can give that little ball fake and try to get to the get to the rim or just shoot over the top of a guy. And, and, and the Cavs have been really effective with Ben Wallace uh, being able to show 
and get back to that guy. And when they when they make their sub, they usually play about two to three or maybe three to four minutes a half with uh, LeBron at the four spot. And, and he's just as effective, too. He can show and still recover and, and make it hard for that pick-and-pop action to be really very good. Mm-hmm. Well, John, you mentioned the, the Cavs' recent throws. And, and, you know, first off, let's put it in perspective. You know, the Cavs still do lead the NBA – in uh you know in in points per game uh, allowed you know right now they're sitting at uh, 91.3 points per game that they're giving up that's first in the league so you know whenever we say struggle or we say uh uh you know having troubles with we have to kind of take that with a grain of salt because despite their their perceived struggles uh, they still are first in the league. Um, their opponent's field goal percentage is uh, sitting at uh, 43%, which is second in the league, only to uh, only to Boston. Um, so, you know, numbers-wise, obviously, you know, the Cavs are having a, a superior season. Um, now, recently, and when I say recently, I guess I go back to uh, uh, the first game that uh, that. Ben Walsh was uh, was out for, which uh, would have been the San Antonio game. He got hurt in, in Houston, and then uh, the next game was San Antonio. Now San Antonio didn't, uh, if you remember right, they didn't play uh, you know most of their uh, uh, star quality players. I think Tony Parker was the only uh, real star player that they had on the floor. I know Duncan was missing and so forth, and so the Cavs rolled over them pretty easy. But without Ben Wallace. Uh, for this uh, however many game stretch, they're giving up 94.8 points per game. And that includes, you know, a couple of, of you know, sub-80 point games uh, against San Antonio and against Milwaukee. And so, you know, we're seeing a significant increase in scoring against the Cavs as of late. Now, you know, certainly you could say, well, they're missing Ben Wallace and that's, you know, that's the reason that, that, that that's happening. But I think, it, you know, to the to the the more interested fan or the you know the maybe the uh, the person that looks at things a little more technically um you know we, we can see some some issues that are coming to coming into play for example you know you talked about um the Cavs being able to stop dribble t- penetration and and um you know recently uh, even you know we saw it last night uh, with uh, with the magic you know with Ray Ralston coming around screens and getting you know just right to the hole or even a, a Hito Turkoglu you know going from from about the three point line you know to the uh, to the basket uncontested what is it about uh, penetration right now that the Cavs are not able to stop maybe a, a more simple question how do you stop dribble penetration in the NBA well, and you talked about a team that's a little bit unique in the NBA when you talk about Orlando. It's hard to gauge whether or not you've done a decent job against dribble penetration against them as often, particularly when a guy like Wallace isn't 100% or isn't available. And it's with them, it's because they all shoot it so well. They all shoot it from deep, and, and you really don't have nearly as much opportunity to help. Uh, and, and, and he had a great game last night, no taking anything away from him, but I think going in in a scouting report since, they, the Cavs probably would have been more content to allow Ray for Alston to penetrate and finish a play himself than to allow Ray for Alston to penetrate, give a collapsing help, and allow him to kick to guys that can spot and shoot it. I mean, it, it, it sounds odd to say, you know, you want to give up a two-foot shot over a 24-footer, but, but Ray for Alston's not typically going to be a big-time finisher. So as long as you try to stay in decent position, even if he's getting to the lane, and try to harass the shots that he takes, and you stay at home on the shooters, and you stay at home on Dwight Howard, and try to make sure you, you know, you block out on him and and limit him to one shot. I I think it was kind of a pick your poison type thing, and and I don't I don't think Ray for Alston had by any stretch what would be called a typical game uh, for him. I I just think some things really fell into place where maybe that was their choice. And you said it before; it's almost like picking your poison against them sure. because. 
if you single up on Dwight Howard or you single up on on a guy as quick as he is uh, in in Alston, you're going to give up some 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 shots at the basket. Um, but I think that the, the real simple question of, of containing penetration in the NBA is it, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, it's incredibly hard. If it weren't, then you'd see very very few teams run screen and roll basketball. But so many teams run it because it is very hard. And what makes it really really hard. Uh, is, and there's two things I think that stand out for the Cavs. Number one, when, when Wallace goes out, it's not so much just missing him that hurts their defense, but what it does is it, it maybe puts LeBron in that four spot for more minutes than you want him to be uh, and affects him because he's got to work harder physically and he's got to fight a little more on the defensive end so it takes some things out of him on offense. Uh, you've got to play Z maybe some more extended minutes than you want to this time of year, which makes him a little less effective over the course of, uh, of a full game. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, Andy comes in and plays more five. Uh, J.J. Hickson's going to get more minutes, which by and large, uh, again, I think there's two reasons why that's not always good for the Cavs this time of year. Number one, J.J. Hickson's college season should have been over a long time ago, <laughs> and he could be really primed for a, a short burst of a run. And He's got quite a bit of basketball to go here, so there is that, that rookie wall, so to speak, that you battle with, and it'll show up on the defensive end well ahead of showing up on the offensive end because it's just a fatigue thing and it's a mental thing. And then the other thing with Hickson is, as as we talked about or I talked about in the, in the the article that I wrote to respond to the to the reader's question, is that there are just some nuances to defense. There are some shortcuts and some things that you you have to play to learn, and you have to really really spend time in the NBA. I mean, we're talking about LeBron James. Everybody's talking about the vast improvements he's made in defense this year. He's the best player in the world, and and he's making noticeable improvement at the defensive end this far into his career mm-hmm. uh, because it's not it's not easy. It's a difficult thing to do, and, and to be real honest with you, it's not something a lot of guys, particularly young guys, will will do. It won't come naturally to them, and they won't invest a ton of time in it away from the, uh, from the game floor because it's not where the paychecks get made. Mm-hmm. The paychecks get made at the statistical end. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so, you know, obviously we – we can understand how uh you know against Orlando maybe they they decided to to kind of let Ray for Austin get whatever Ray for Austin could get um how do the Cavs if and, and the, what was frustrating to me or well I guess I wasn't as frustrated cuz they won um but they seemed to be able to stop that in the fourth quarter you know the second and the third quarter they kind of allowed the penetration and uh, you know they, they brought somebody over late uh, you know, like you say, to try and bother the shot, but by then it was too late. Um, but then in the in the fourth quarter, it looked like, uh, to me, and again, I'm no coach, but it looked like Mo Williams was right in front of him the entire time, uh, and, and he just couldn't get around, uh, you know, couldn't get around Mo, and, and you know, whether the, they were able to slip the screen or whatever was happening, um, the Cavs were just doing a much better job of staying in front of uh, the man with the ball uh, in the fourth quarter is is there something to that or is it was it simply a matter of intensity how does that happen i think intensity has a lot to do with it but i think sometimes that can get overrated i think the other part uh, of of being real effective late in games defensively and, and the Cavs would be the first to tell you this is a lot of scouting report things come into play um you know as you get into a game situation in the nba and you've got a fourth quarter lead um, you know, the, the assistant coaches, Chris Gent does a, a ton of their scouting for them, and, and you'll notice a lot of times in the Cavaliers' timeouts, Coach Brown may be saying very little. 
Uh, it's Coach Jenner, one of the other guys that's, that's kind of running the timeout because they may have had the primary scout for this team for this game, or they may have had the focal point of the defensive end of the floor. And, and as you get into situations where you, you maybe get inside that six, seven, eight-minute mark uh, of the fourth quarter, there are a lot of things that you can eliminate uh, that, that, the, that the other team may try to do. In other words, your scouting report will tell you, okay, from this point forward, here's where the focus is going to be for them. Here's, where, here's what we're going to have to defend every time down the floor. This is going to be their bread and butter. We can, we can kind of not worry so much about the other things on the backside of the floor, or we can, we can take some of this, what, what we in the coaches' circles, they call it false movement. You know, They may be doing some action on the weak side of the floor, but it's really not anything to worry about. Just kind of zone that up and, 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 and get locked in on the ball. And you become a lot better defensive team when, when the playbook gets narrowed down. I, I compare it to, to football when you've, when you've got a team in a, in a two-minute offense. If, you've, if you're really well prepared as a defensive team, you can say, okay, there's certain parts of the playbook that are gone right now. Sure. You know, they're, they're not going to do these things in a two-minute offense, so we don't have to worry about play action and, and the like. Well, in the NBA, it's the same thing. You get into those situations where a team's maybe facing a six-, seven-, eight-point deficit and, and needs to score on every trip if they can in that last four or five minutes. Uh, there are certain things that just aren't, aren't something you concern yourself with anymore, and you get really locked in and honed in as, as a team defensively. Um, but I do think, and particularly that game last night with Orlando, um, I, I'm not going to kind of make this sound complicated. I think Mo Williams just decided it was time to get it done on the ball. Hmm. And uh, I think that's – if you had to ask me the, the single biggest change in the Cavs from last year to this year, uh, my – and he's a great scorer, but what they can do defensively with Delonte West and Mo Williams and not have to worry about help as often uh, – because those guys are just that good. They're just excellent on-ball defenders. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like anything else. There's, there's going to be moments in the game when your legs aren't there. There's going to be moments in the game when maybe you, you've missed a couple of shots and it's affecting your effort at the defensive end. Well, Mo Williams has proven, if nothing else, that when it gets to the guts of the game or what some people call crunch time, he blocks all that out. And he's pretty effective at both ends. Well, you mentioned a little bit about uh, uh, LeBron and, and his improvement, and certainly, you know, um, a lot of people are touting him to to be, uh, you know, at least on the All Defensive Team, if not the Defensive Player of the Year. Um, and, and I, one of the questions I had down here to ask, what what specifically, what things can you point to about LeBron's game that you can say he's made an improvement on this end of the floor? The, the thing that jumps out to me, and I don't think it's it's surprising to anybody that really watches, his intensity level off the ball defensively is is remarkably better than it's been in the past. He's always been a good help side defender, and he's always kind of liked to shoot the passing lanes and and create turnovers and get out in the open floor. But um, you know that 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 early on in his career that led him to be really really ball conscious in the help side. He would be off the ball, but he would be very ball conscious and a lot of times not have a real awareness of where his man was, and he might miss a block out or, or in a critical situation or, or miss a help assignment because he was really gambling. His intensity and discipline uh, in his off-ball defense has been impressive, very impressive. He he's, he's tends to be at least almost seemingly always in the right spot. I mean, the number of block shots that he's gotten this year uh, alone, he gets the highlight blocks in the open floor, mm-hmm. but he also gets a lot of block shots in the half court because he's not, uh, let's say, for example, the ball's on the left-hand side of the floor and, and being pushed down that sideline. Well, he's not creeping out towards the top of the key, anticipating that reversal pass, trying to trying to sprint out and try to get a steal. He's playing the backside, the weak side guy, and he's kind of alert to both things. He's, 
we, we, we used to say a lot, when you're that backside guy and a team, let's say a team's running screen and roll on the weak side of the, or the other side of the floor and you're left on the weak side, sometimes you've got to play against two offensive players because, you know, one guy's going to help on the screen, the next guy's got to be ready to help if he turns the corner. So you've got to play your guy off the ball, and you might have to be ready to rotate to that second pass. And uh, LeBron has done, a, I think, a really good job of staying at home, being in a good stance, being aware of the ball, being aware of his man, and, and then he, he, he makes remarkable rotations. He, he's contested and blocked shots on the perimeter. He's dropped to the backside and, and blocked shots off that backside block. Um, he, he really has effectively played two and sometimes three guys from, from his backside spot. And that's just a discipline thing and a maturity thing, in my opinion, instead of being, being aware of and ready to make the big uh, highlight real type play, he is aware of and ready to make the, uh, the sound, solid, team-oriented defensive play. And it just stands out to me that he's done a much better job as a help side defender than he has in the past. Now, you know, you might – one might look at the uh, the experience that he had from from the Olympic Games this summer and wonder if uh, he didn't pick up some of that that team game maybe from uh, uh, you know from playing with those guys but also maybe from some of the college coaches that were part of that team. Uh, is there any validity to that? I th- I think there's two things about the Olympic team that stand out to me. Number one, there was a very heavy zone component in the coaching staff with Bayheim there, and, and there's a lot of man-to-man principles in the way that he teaches the zone. And uh, and they did play a little bit of zone, and it was a, it was a part of their their overall attack defensively. And I think that had to be helpful. The second thing is, I, from a man-to-man defensive standpoint, there's not a better coach in our game uh, than Mike Shashevsky. Uh and, and creating that team mentality, there's not a better coach in our game than Mike Shashevsky. But I, I would say probably the two biggest impacts on LeBron, maybe from 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 the Olympic experience in terms of really trying to round into an excellent defensive player were Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. Uh, I don't think you could be around those guys and not realize how, how much they've sold out to being great all-around basketball players. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, you are, whether you are or are not a Kobe Bryant fan, it's undeniable that he's been the most complete player in the game for, for a few years now uh, in terms of both ends of the floor, being a playmaker, being a scorer, uh, you know, and trying to be a leader. And, and I think uh, Dwayne Wade is... is even as good as he is, may be underrated as as an overall all around both ends of the floor kind of player. Yeah, you know one of the other things that we hear about LeBron and and honestly uh, the entire Cavs team is that they they play the passing lanes well. What, can you break that down for us? What exactly do they mean when they say that? Well, I think it's real simple from from a defensive standpoint. Is you can be much more aggressive in the passing lanes. You can get out and contest passes a little harder. You can. You can do those things when you know for sure that two things are going to be pretty consistent. One is the guy on the ball is not going to get beat a lot. If the guy on the ball can handle his guy one-on-one, you don't have to worry about coming over to help on a drive. You can be ready to play that next pass. And the second part of that is if you've got some size and some space eaters and some shot blockers at the rim, then you don't have to worry about the backdoor cut. Because if a guy beats you back door, you're going to feel pretty comfortable that you've got a guy. There's going to be a guy there taking care of you. And, and like I said, I, I think he's a tremendously underrated defender in, in Z. Uh, he, he is he's big enough and strong enough, and he's long enough that he can play a lot of guys head up one on one in the post and make it hard for him to score over the top of him. He's enough of a space eater. He's long enough. He's not a tremendous shot blocker, but he's a presence. And Ben Wallace is, uh, even at this stage of his career, even with, I think, maybe 
slow in a step, certainly losing some explosiveness. He still is a guy that's an enforcer around the basket. And, you, uh, you mean that, that the guy that maybe has missed as many dunks as he's made this season has lost uh, some explosiveness? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've always... I, I've always said he's not a dumb guy because as he start, has he started having more and more trouble getting off the floor, the hair got shorter and shorter. <laughs> he's creating less wind drag. <laughs> oh, that's funny. You know, one of the things that, that we'll look forward to uh, is, is obviously Ben Wallace coming back, um, and, and, you know, hopefully that will be happening here in the next two to possibly three weeks. Uh, just, I guess, uh, maybe outside of the, the defensive question, what can we expect from Ben Wallace when he gets back? One of the things that I was – uh, I guess when you look at the, you try and look at the bright side or the silver lining to anything. Uh, to me, it's that Ben Wallace got some rest before the playoffs because um, you know you, you mentioned it. He's he's not exactly a, you know a young pup anymore, and uh, certainly you know we would see on on back to backs or um, you know extended trips. Uh, ben Wallace would would get a little tired. He'd get a little winded, and so for me, when when he went down, I thought, well, you know it. it the best case scenario is he comes back rested for the playoffs. Uh, you know, with his rehab and with with everything that's going on, is that going to be a case? And and how long do you think will it take before he's in, as they say, game shape? Well, you know, there, there's there's two sides of that coin. One is uh, because of, of of his loss of, of a little bit of a step of quickness and some explosiveness, his timing is really really important. And so I think that becomes a real concern. Is it, particularly at the defensive end, because in in the NBA and in particularly in the Eastern Conference right now, with the teams that are battling out for that top spot, uh, a weak link or a or a you know uh, an issue with timing in your defensive rotations and in your defensive scheme can really create problems. And so hopefully his timing will come back quickly. That would be my biggest concern. But the other side of the coin is you don't have to really be concerned about him getting his quote-unquote offensive game back or getting a shooting touch back, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, we don't really care. Yeah. I mean, so he can focus uh, the bulk of his energy and effort into getting his defensive timing back, getting his game wind back where he can play for longer stretches. But, I, again, I still think that's why, uh, that's why Joe Smith, if you, can, if you can rely on him, and J.J. Hickson and, and, and Darnell Jackson, they become important. Mm-hmm. Because they, they they may have to give you spot minutes here and there just to allow him. I think Ben's going to need maybe short rests, but more of them initially when he first comes back. And he, and he may be exactly in the right spot. I mean, we're just about to April, and, and he may be really primed at the playoffs. It may work out really, really well. Yeah. Well, and, you know, another – Guy that uh, that we lost for for maybe uh, two to three weeks last night was Wally Zerbiak, and now on the site today we kind of had a slight discussion about Wally Zerbiak and and his worth to the team. Um, I, I maintain that that even though you know there are times when when personally I think that Wally's put in tough positions because he's asked to guard people that are that are either too too quick for him or too big for him, and he does a, a decent job. He does you know certainly a a blue collar job on on both of those types of people. What kind of defensive things uh, might we miss from from Wally in, in his you know whatever twelve minutes he was getting a game? Well, and again, I don't think it's it's any kind of secret. Wally Zerbiak didn't get to the NBA because he was a good defender. Mm-hmm. He hasn't stayed in the NBA because he's a good defender. Uh, he got to the NBA and he stayed in the NBA because he can shoot it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 I've heard a lot of statements about Wally. Well, if he's not making threes, he can't help you. 
Well, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the case. It's the case with a lot of guys in the NBA. But if he is making the three, he, he is human, and his defense is better. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think he's as big of a weakness defensively as people uh, make him out to be because of what you just said. He's strong. He's got some size, so he can guard players a little bigger than him. Sometimes he's asked to guard players a lot bigger than him, but he can at least do a, a, a good job, and, and he's got six fouls, um, and, and he'll use them. He, he does hurt them a little bit against quicker players, but you know I've said this uh, I don't know how many times. I, I look at different teams in the NBA, and and – uh, you know, I watched New Orleans play. Pages Soyakovich plays all kinds of minutes, and he can't guard anybody. <laughs> I mean, Wally can really defend compared to Pages Soyakovich. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Magic go out and play, and they do their thing, but Hito Turkoglu can't defend. <laughs> he doesn't defend. And, and so even though Wally's not a great defender, I think number one is I think he's bought into the concept of, of the importance of and the foundation of the Cavs being defense. So if he doesn't want his limits his minutes limited considerably, he's going to play. Yeah. He's going to give you what he's got. But it, let's not overcomplicate things. We still need Wally to make shots, or he is going to sit a lot. Sure, sure. Well, I think you know one of the things that that we're obviously focused on is um, uh, you know the Cavs and can they get home court advantage uh, you know throughout the Eastern Conference or, or you know hopefully throughout uh, all of the playoffs. Um, let's talk for just a second about defensive matchups. Um, that first round of the playoffs, you know, the Cavs are, are possibly looking at uh, either the Bulls, the Knicks, or the uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. Which uh, which one of those three teams presents a matchup problem defensively for the Cavs, or, or, or is there? Uh, you know, I the the pat answer would be to say that you why would you worry about any of those three teams? You know, they're at the bottom of the Eastern Conference; they won't be over 500 and those things. The 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 team that would scare me probably more than than any of them. Uh, would be the Knicks, um, and I say that because of the fact that the Knicks can be so incredibly explosive at the offensive end of the floor, mm-hmm. um, and, and they, they, you, they can put you in a position where you, you just have to score a lot of points, um, and the Cavs are more than capable, but it, it's, it's hard to turn a, a game against Mike D'Antoni's teams into a game where uh, the team you know, the, the team can be in control defensively, where you hold a team in those 80s to mid 90s type nights or low 90s type nights and and feel like I mean you, you, they're they're going to get to the mid 90s most nights they're going to get to the they're going to break the century mark most nights now they, they they don't make it as hard for you to do that either um, and, and from that standpoint I guess if I had to rank order them I'd say the Knicks concern me but it's really close because Milwaukee scares me too and and, and Milwaukee scares me just because they've gotten so many quality wins this year. Yeah. I mean, they've beaten they've beaten some very very good teams, and, and and I say what you will about the guy, he hasn't been remarkably successful in the NBA, although he has been to made some deep playoff runs. Scott Skiles is a defensive coach, yeah, and and so you know when you get to the playoffs, the game is probably going to be a little more half court. The game is probably going to be a little more about defense, and he's already going to have that ingrained. Plus, plus the Bucks just have some capabilities, even without Michael Red on the floor, they've beaten some good teams, and they've beaten them. Uh, you know, they've won fairly consistently uh, in some big games, and Charlie Villanueva has become a matchup problem, and, and and if they ever get healthy, which they're not going to obviously get Red back, but if they would ever get Bogut back or some of the other guys on the front line, they can really bother the Cavs, where I think the Cavs' uh, depth is a concern when Wallace is hurt, and that's their front court. Um, you know, I 
as much as I'd like to, I've, I've, I've kind of been a fan of, of, of the Bulls in, over the course of my lifetime. It's, I'd like to say that the Bulls could, could, could test some teams, but uh, I, I just don't see it out of Chicago right now. They're, they're too inconsistent. They've got a rookie point guard. Um, their defense has been probably the most maddeningly inconsistent in the NBA. Uh, and, and the Cavs, like you said, I mean, the Cavs' statistics aren't going to change much. They're going to be near the top of the league in all the categories you talked about. So, so they're going to be a defensive team. I don't know. I, I like a matchup really with Chicago if you could get it, but uh, I'd take either of the three. I mean, the Cavs would have to feel very, very confident. I just, I just feel like that Milwaukee, Milwaukee may be the problem, the potential problem if, if you had to play them because of the fact that it, it is going to be more of a slugfest. It's, it's, a, it's a team in your own division, so there's a, a, you know, a ridiculous amount of familiarity there, and, mm-hmm. and, and that can create a problem. Well, now, you, you talk about familiarity, and, and one of my things, uh, as I was looking at, at the possible first-round matchup, is you, know, you look at the Bulls. Now, obviously, we play the Bulls a couple times before the playoffs begin, but we have not seen this team. You know, we played the Bulls early in the season. I, honestly, I don't know that I could name you the, the starting nine for for the the Bulls. You know, the nine in the rotation because of all the different trades that have gone about, and you know, just the different pieces that are there. And I don't know who you know Del Negro is running in and out. Uh, and so, is how much is familiarity um, a, a, an issue when you get to the playoffs? Well, it, it actually it's an issue early in, in a series. You know, I think especially in the first round of this. Playoff game one tends to be really important, but the one thing that's true about the NBA more than, than than at any other level of basketball is those guys are the best coaches in the world, and and when they know that they're going to play somebody for uh, you know seven times in ten days, they get locked in. Everybody gets familiar pretty fast, mm-hmm. and so I think familiarity only really serves a, a, a real gives you maybe a real big advantage early in a series, maybe that first mm-hmm. game maybe the second game, but by then they, you're so studied out and your tendencies are so well documented that it really comes down to execution. And and um, and I think that's why the playoffs are fun, because it comes down to your best players being their best. Very, very seldom do you see an NBA team get hot because a role player is doing something. Hmm. Uh, NBA teams make runs in the playoffs and are effective in the playoffs because the superstars are superstars. And sure. to me that makes it fun. I mean, it's not that it's not fun the other way. The college game is totally the other way. The college game teams can make long playoff runs or, or, or runs in the NCAA tournament and things like that because of an unexpected guy gives you four or five straight games of really good play. Yeah, uh, you know that, it just, that's not an NBA thing. The NBA is what it is because when the superstars are superstars, that, that's what happens. And I think familiarity can be a little bit overrated because I think it is fairly consistent across the board once you get locked in on a series uh, and you know exactly who you're playing. The thing with the Bulls is is not only do they have some guys that we haven't seen, but they have some guys that we can't say, well, remember when he was with New York or remember when he was with Indiana because sure. Hammonds came over from Sacramento. So right. you really see you really see very little of that guy yeah. in terms of your personal experience with it. So that is a little bit unique, and he does score the ball well. I mean, that, that guy's very capable, but uh, I don't know. I, I Like I said, I, I think we've... No one likes to say it, but I hope we're at the point with the Cavs because I'm really become a full-on Cavs fan. Is that you'd like to believe that we're at the point where we can really can kind of I won't say assume, but we can kind of accept the idea that we're just going to win the first round of the playoffs. Sure, sure. And, well, and uh, you know, obviously that takes us to the second round, and we're looking at a, a potential Heat um, Hawks matchup, which in in my book, uh, that to me is, is would be the series that. Uh, 
that I would most want to watch in the playoffs. You know, it, aside from you know being a Cavs fan, uh, the Heat Hawks just to me it seems like it would be a, a fast pace, up and down, uh, real exciting basketball game. Um, which of those two teams that, that could possibly emerge uh, for us in in the second round? Again, assuming that we um, maintain our our advantage and, and win. Uh, uh, Eastern Conference, uh, you know, top seed. Which of those two teams presents the biggest challenge for us? Uh, I think it may be a pick 'em in that case. I think Atlanta, uh, their balance is is a little more uh, something to be concerned about. Um, you know, I, I still think that they they may have been a flash in the pan to some degree in the playoffs last year, um, but they do have more balance maybe than Miami. But I guess if I had to say who would I rather play, who would I be more concerned with, I just don't want to play Dwayne Wade if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. I, that, that's Like I said, that's what the NBA is to me and what it's become about is is superstar players you know, playing like superstars. And you know, the, the guys around you have to get it done. Obviously, Michael Jordan didn't win an NBA title until, until he had the support of Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, and some of those guys. And Dwayne Wade's probably not going to be a serious threat to an NBA title uh, until he gets a little more consistent support but uh you know he's good enough to make daquan cook an effective nba player so he's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) and and and, uh the other thing about miami that's a little bit you know that you can be uncertain about is what happens with with a rookie point guard mario chalmers i think i saw tonight is is one of only three rookies in the league to start every game for his team this year uh, there's got to be a rookie wall for him. What will happen with him undoubtedly is he will not understand the intensity of the playoffs until he's in the midst of it. Sure. And and if he's doing so, if he's if he let's say he's got a matchup with a Mike Bibby or somebody like that, he may really get a baptism of fire and and learn some quick lessons in the playoffs. So um, they're, they're both to me they're both maybe equally dangerous for different reasons. I think Miami, uh, you know, because of Dwayne Wade is what they are, and I think Atlanta. It's hard to say with them. You know, they may find themselves back in the playoffs, and the, and the switch may go on, like it did last year, and they they may become an even better team than they've shown this year. So, uh, I, I'm like you. To me, that's the matchup that's going to be exciting to see, no matter who it is. And uh, outside of actually playing to get to the NBA Finals or playing in the NBA Finals, I think that series could be uh, have a ton of fireworks. Yeah, I'm excited about that one too. Uh, and you know, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I think you you said it best. I I just don't want any part of Dwayne Wade, not not at all. Especially you know the, obviously you know the the MVP voting and and all of that uh, kind of uh, uh, you know nonsense and debate and discussion that that goes on uh, you know around the internet and and around NBA circles. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to uh, to face Dwayne Wade with a chip on his shoulder either. And so uh, no no uh, and and that that's the thing about guys like that that's scary is when you get to be as good as they are you would think that they are out of challenges and so what what do they do well they create them they they yeah. they create motivation and they're good at it that's what makes them great lebron's the same way you know jordan was maybe the best ever at it and 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 like you yeah, i don't i don't want Dwayne Wade out there looking for for something to hang on his locker or put on the mirror sure. uh, for him to see every day to, to before he comes to play us in a series i don't want that at all yeah you know one of the things that i think that i kind of have learned over the last couple of years watching NBA basketball is that there is there are just some guys in the league. You know, we talk about defense and all the things that, that you know, go into making a player a great defender. But even a great defender cannot stop a great offensive player. 
You know, no, you it, may you may be able to challenge shots. You may be able to you know to to make them work hard. But you know, a guy like Dwayne Wade or Kobe Bryant is just so talented and and so focused offensively that they're going to find a way to score no matter what you do defensively. Well, and again, it's it's a truism in sports, and and it, it gets maybe too often repeated that defense wins championships. I wholeheartedly believe that. You know, if you talk baseball, it's pitching and defense. That's what everybody talks about. But the bottom line is you can be excellent defensively, you can be well-coached, you can be well-positioned, and there are things you can't defend. I mean, if you if you don't believe that, then ask the Arizona Cardinals whether or not they played pretty good defense, actually outstanding defense before Santonio Holmes caught that pass that, that could have only been thrown in one spot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, because if you if you do it just right and it's defended very well, you're still going to score. Yeah. In football, in baseball, and in basketball is the same case. I mean, you can do it just right. You can do exactly what your scouting report tells you to do, and a superior athlete can make a superior play, and there's a pretty good chance the ball's going to end up in the net. That's a part of the game. So as true as it is that defense wins championships, there are certain times in a game when certain players can do indefensible things. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, I sure. game or a serious uh, great player still is only going to hit the – hit the shot 50% of the time if he's lucky. So, right, good right. And that, that's why, like I said, that's why I, I, don't want to give, I don't want to give Dwayne Wade uh, four games to take that shot because if he makes two of them, we're in trouble. Absolutely. You know, then it's two to two and you've got to win a fifth game, and, and so that's a little scary. So you're right, even the best players are only going to hit the, the biggest shots, but, but if you don't give them that opportunity, uh, they're, they're not going to make any of the shots they don't get to take in, in those situations. Yeah. Well, John, I certainly appreciate you coming on, and uh, we appreciate you sharing some of your your basketball wisdom with us. Um, Look forward to uh, talking with you sometime here in the future. Uh, Well, I I love it. I love basketball. I I love, actually, right now, I really love the Cavs. I love what they do and and what they believe in, and and, uh, there's very few things for me that are as much fun as talking basketball, so anytime, I'd love to come back and do it. All right, John, thanks a lot. And, Craig, we thank you for hosting. Uh, that's it for today's podcast. Uh, as always, you can catch all the uh, your Cavalier action, get your news, get your, your daily Cavs fix on waitingfornextyear.com. Uh, also, you can check in, you know, if you happen to want to pay attention to what the Browns are doing nowadays or, you know, get excited for the Indians. We cover those as well as Ohio State and the Columbus Blue Jackets. I had to throw that in there for Dan, looking to uh, to go to the playoffs for the first time in franchise history. But that's it for today. We uh, appreciate you stopping by. Uh, we will talk to you again sometime soon. Strike three, call ball game. This has been the WaitingForNextYear.com podcast. For complete coverage of the Browns, Indians, Cavaliers, and all your Cleveland teams, log on to WaitingForNextYear.com. Contact us on the Internet. Thank you, and good day.